Welcome to Sam's Business Growth Show. I'm Sam Dunning, a digital marketing, sales, and business growth evangelist. Tune in and subscribe today as I'll be interviewing business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. You'll be learning their story, how digital marketing has helped them along the way, and exclusive tips and insights to help you skyrocket your own business. And welcome back to the show. I'm honored to be joined by Rob Jepson today. Rob is the founder and CEO at Xvoyant, a sales leadership technology platform committed to helping organizations develop world-class sales leaders. Xvoyant technology drives transformation across sales teams by powering one-to-one meetings with sales leaders and salespeople. Rob's been recognized by the American Business Awards with a whopping 17 gold and silver Stevie Awards. And for the past seven consecutive years, Rob has been the highest rated speaker in the large enterprise track at the largest technology conference in the world, Dreamforce. Plus, Rob's trained over 1,000 organizations, is a featured speaker at leading sales events worldwide. Rob, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Awesome, Sam. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the intro and it's good to be uh, joining your show. I love what you're doing and I'm excited to talk about how, uh, how you throw gas on a fire and make it burn, baby. <laughs> Love it, dude. Cheers, man. Excited to, to chat today. So really, Rob, it comes down to three things on our show. We want to know your story. Yep. We want to know your top business growth tips. And we want to know your top digital marketing strategies, just marketing strategies in general that have got you and your business to where you are today. So first things first, we'd love to know a bit about your story, Rob. So some of the key places that you've worked and kind of where you grew up since leaving school or college, some of the main businesses you've been involved in, and what you learned along the way up until now, my friend. I'm telling you, man, I, my story is simple, Sam. I suck at most things. And, uh, oh, really? Yeah, I suck at most things. I'm pretty good at the thing we'll talk about, and it took me a while to find it. But when I was in college, I was one of those guys that, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. I switched my major lots of times, and, you know, my dad was an engineer. I, I guess one of the things that's helped me is, uh, as a young boy, my dad is, was uh, on the engineering team. He ran research and development for Hewlett Packard's printer division. And uh, I was around when he invented the laser printer. And, oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And so he, I watched him go through this, you know, how printers were made. And I watched big, giant printers. And he had this idea that you could have a printer on a desktop. And this tells you how old I am. He was told by Dave Hewlett and Bill Packard, we are a mainframe computer and a calculator company. We don't think there's a printer business at Hewlett Packard right now. Literally, that's what he was told. Yeah. And oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, obviously, that changed. That changed. And I watched him do that and invent stuff. And I always thought, why aren't you getting more of the take? You're doing this for somebody else. And so that's one of the reasons that I, as a young person, I was like, I, I, I don't want to be a loner. I want to be an owner. And, um, ah, I see. Yeah, and so I was around that. And I watched you know, smart people invent stuff for larger organizations. And so I, at a young age, I was always hustling, you know, and uh, finding ways to sell things. And, and, uh, it, and I don't know, it was just kind of the way I was wired. I, I loved the competition as well. I was always an athlete. I, I played sports. I was a basketball player. And, and I got into college and you know, my dad wanted me to take engineering classes. And I found out very quickly, I hated engineering. I, I just wasn't smart enough to do all that physics and stuff like that. It just, it just wasn't me. And then I looked at other things. I looked at accounting because that was the high, that, for that university I was at, the, the, their number one program, they were, they were number three accounting school in the nation. So I'll get the best degree I can get here. And 
I hated that. I, I realized that just made me feel like a scorekeeper. Accounts were just scorekeepers. And I was like, I want to be in the game, man. I don't want to be on the sidelines keeping score for other people. And Got it. Uh, I bounced and I couldn't get a sales degree. There was no such thing at the time. I, I ended up gravitating to marketing and I got a marketing degree. And, um, and I guess what was a really turning point for me was I had my senior year in college, I had applied to, to law school and I was accepted to a top law school. I thought I was going to go be an attorney. And I was asked to rep, I was asked to represent my college at a national competition um, where we competed against the other, what they thought were the top 50 schools from the United States. And they gave us a business case and I represented the marketing school. I was the marketing student and we won, we won, we won the whole thing. And I was like, wow, I just out competed the other top 50 schools in the nation. I'm like, why am I going to go to law school when, you know, when it came to coming up with an idea and commercializing it, long story, I won't bore you with it. It made me realize I don't want to go and spend a whole bunch of years going through, uh, just doing BS for other companies. I said, I want to find a way that I can use my skills fast. So I, I decided not to go to law school. I found a privately held company that was small that I would get myself into a job that I probably wasn't qualified for. And I had to figure out how to sell stuff fast. And the first thing they put me into was sales. I'd never sold anything. And short version of the story, I was pretty successful. That led me into enterprise sales. And, um, and I very quickly realized the closest thing to being a, pro- a professional athlete is being a salesperson because one person wins and everybody else loses. And love that. Okay. Yeah. And I found that the harder I worked and the better I prepared, the better I performed in the environment of, of the sales arena. And very, very quickly I realized I was home and that's why I bounced so much in college because I was born to be a salesperson and, um, and I love it. And so I made my career about, how do you figure out how sales works? Because for a long time, in the last 10 years, sales has become a lot more developed. It's become a lot more mainstream. It's not seen as a scumbag if you're a salesperson. Um, universities are teaching sales now. Uh, I still say sales is the most important uh, job in any business, but it's still the least developed. But in the last 10 years, that's Completely changed. Completely agree. So, Completely agree. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I, I went to a couple privately held companies and, and I learned really fast that equity was what it was about. You want to be in a spot where if you're going to be in sales, sales drives the valuation of a company. You better be the one. Cause I remember the first time I was as a young dude, a company sold and, and I was one of the top sales guys as a young, young guy out selling guys, 15, 20 years older than me. Let's dive into that quickly, Rob. How yeah. did you make that happen? So I know you said, it sounds like you went from accounts to law, to marketing, to a startup, got into yeah. sales, yeah, that's and then exactly you started right. ramping up the game, realized that you could utilize some of your sports background and competitiveness into this, and then you said you were the number one sales guy. And was this in enterprise sales or Rob? T- tell yeah, us we, were sell- we were selling enterprise software to financial institutions for, for needs-based financial planning. And so there was one person that had all the named accounts, and then after that, this young guy that, yeah, it's funny. So if you have a guy that's pretty much two years out of college, hasn't ever sold enterprise software, comes in and sells himself into a job he shouldn't have. What territory do you give that kid? You give him the shittiest territory, right? <laughs> you give him the worst. Right. So here, here's the territory I got. We're selling to financial institutions. And so they gave me the New England states of the United States, which is cool, but they took away New York City and Boston. So I didn't get those two places, which are the only two places that has anything. And, and then they said, by the way, the fastest that anybody has ever come on the company and got their first deal is seven months. That's the record. Okay. I'm like, I got to beat that. And um, so, I, you know, my very first deal was with the Hartford Life Insurance Company. 
And, um, and I did that deal in four and a half months. And so Sweet I broke enough. the record. And so, yeah, that's so what we did. It was just, it was enterprise software for large financial institutions. So they could do financial planning for people. And, and it was a, it was a expert system that would, it would recommend products based on what their risk tolerances and stuff like that was. It was in the, it was in, in the late nineties. Now it would be, a, it, I'm sure they have cooler AI products now, but back then we were the coolest game in town. Good. So I was, I was selling expert systems as a young person early in my career. And I'm super lucky for that. That train, that gave me opportunities that set me up for the rest of my career. Awesome, man. And can you talk us a little bit through, so that sales cycle they said was typically seven months, but you took it down to four and a half. Yeah. Were there any secrets or strategies that you could share with us on how you made that happen? I wish I could tell you is because I was an expert. Again, remember, it was my first enterprise job, man. Yeah. And so uh, part of it was hustle. Part of it was I, I happened to have good timing. I mean, I'm, I've been in this game long enough to know that my very first win that I ever had with the Hartford Life Insurance Company, I was fortunate. Uh, Sam, I was fortunate, but, but I will tell you this, here's something that's interesting. That was my first enterprise deal. It was over 20 years ago. That guy that bought for me is still a dear friend to this day. Oh, really? Amazing. Yeah. We became good friends then. And that's part of it. I mean, I was just really authentic. Uh, I knew what I knew and I knew what I didn't know. And, and I, back then relationship selling is probably more important than it is now because now it's about what you can do for people. And back then I, I made it about me being this relationship guy they could trust and we hit it off and he found a way to work with us. And, and we've, we've been friends ever since. Like he, when he comes to Utah to go skiing, he comes to my house and um, 20 years later. So on that one, I wish I could tell you that I was like the king of process. I wasn't, I was, I was a hustler. I guess that's a first law is if there's one thing that I've always, my whole career, Sam, um, I've said, I'm not going to get outworked. There are going to be people who have more experience than me. There's going to be people that are smarter, easily be smarter than me. I'm never the smartest person in the room, um, but I can outwork you. And I worked super hard. It was important to me that I was, I was outworking. I left nothing to chance. And, um, and I think that was one of the reasons I've had success. So I, but that company got sold after me being there two years. And I'll tell you what pissed me off is I had key deals that really drove the valuation of the company but my equity right. position was so small. Like I was like the commissions that I got on this deal are nothing compared to what the equity in the company is worth. And so that was like a big aha moment for me. I was like, I am going to be an owner, not a loner. I've said that to you before. And, um, and that started me going to a few different companies. I've worked for a blend of, of privately held companies and publicly held companies. And uh, I, I, I had an opportunity to work with a couple of other companies that wasn't pure startup, they were kind of in the middle and I got to see them get acquired and harvested. And, um, and I had a mentor tell me, Rob, because I told him, I said, I think sales is going to become really big. I think it's going to be important. I've, I've realized that sales is what drives valuations. I've, I've realized sales is what drives exits. I said, I think that sales is going to become more mainstream. And I remember telling my mentor, I want to become one of the people that helps drive the sales profession. And he told me, then you got to do one thing. He goes, you got to stop working for these privately held ones that you're just trying to exit. If you want to do that, you're going to have to have big company experience because that's too important. You know, it's leading a team of three to five to 10 salespeople is way different than leading a team of a thousand salespeople. And um, okay. so he encouraged me to find a big one. And I did, I, I was recruited to and, and asked to join a large financial institution and I ended up being the head of sales for the whole organization and I led a team of roughly a thousand salespeople across seven different lines of business 
So how was how did you transition from working in startups and fairly small companies? And it's what even worse, like a Sam. Huge company, dude. It's even it's even it's even worse, Sam, because <laughs> I've always been a tech guy, and this was a financial institution. I know nothing about commercial banking, zip, none of it. And you want to know why they recruited me? I'd sold my tech to them, and they came back to me and said, "The way you sold us, we we are hard to sell to." And we love how you sold to us. We want you to come in and have all of our people sell to us the way you, that you we want all of our reps selling the way you sold to us. You know, at it. that point in my career, I had really gotten good at process. I'd figured out that process was a big deal. And we can talk about that when we start talking about the other parts. But sure. I, I, I was fortunate. I, I had other good mentors along the way, Sam. I, Rick Page, who wrote a book, Hope is Not a Strategy, put his arm around me. Gary Rhodes put his arm around me. John Hyde put his arm. I had I, iconic guys like taking interest in me at a young age and it opened doors. And, um, but yeah, I had to make a transition. And I remember when this big company hired me, I said, well, you know, it took them almost a year to get me to say yes because I was so afraid of banking because I just didn't know it. And also big company. And, and when I got ready to say yes, I said, we have one condition. You have to give us a three-year commit. And I thought I was signing my life. I was like, three-year commit? And they said, Rob, it's going to take us over a year just to teach you to speak our language. And it was right. So that three-year commit ended up being a 10-year stop because I ended up enjoying it so much. And, um, and I guess the biggest lesson that I learned there, Sam, was to diagnose before you prescribe. So many leaders come in and they are so, in such a hurry to put their thumbprint on the job. They violate Jepson's first law of sales leadership. And Jepson's first law of sales leadership is this. Leaders on pedestals make easy targets. And uh, as soon as you put yourself up on a pedestal, people want to knock you down. And uh, so I, I took the first six months taking it in, you know, speaking, doing some motivational stuff, uh, putting in a few process-related things, but mostly learning, shutting up and learning. And that was the big thing was, you know, be willing to learn. I, after 90 days, I think I had it figured out what I wanted to do. But then I needed that next 90 days to make sure I won over people so I'd had the allies to have support for what I wanted my initiatives to be. And it was huge. In fact, the other thing that the guy who hired me said to me, Sam, when I said, I asked him, what's going to be the hardest part of this job? And he said, learning how to navigate big company politics. Said, Cause you're, he said, you're kind of a lightning rod. You speak your mind. And around here, that can get your throat slit. <laughs> yeah, so. man. I mean, I love what you just said. Um, moving back when you said diagnose before you prescribe. That's, yeah. that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's something that's key, I think, for anyone that's selling anything. It is. And, and as a leader, you have to do that. If you come in and just try and rattle cages, you're going to create enemies instead of friends. And, um, and just like a salesperson, I've always had the, the analogy in my mind, Sam, that as a salesperson, we're an airplane on a runway. We've got this runway. And when we first call someone and we get them on the phone, you got a runway that's maybe five minutes long, okay, max. And the question is, can you extend that runway? Can you turn five minutes into 10 minutes? Can you turn 10 minutes into 20 minutes? And then when it's done, they're like, man, I, I need more time with that guy. I think the same thing as a leader. How do you extend the runway and get people to jump on board with what you're doing? I, I think leading and selling are really not that different if you understand the components of it. They're obviously different in how you use them, but the skills required, pretty much the same thing. Great stuff. And Rob, could you share any insights? This is something I asked Jeb Blunt about a little while back on transitioning from, let's say, transactional-based selling to enterprise-based selling, because there's a big difference, right? How Huge do you make difference. that transition? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say that one's better than the other. Um, I mean, they're totally different. 
and they're not for everyone. I, 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 I've talked to lots of people that really get excited about one call closes or two call closes. And I get someone on the phone and I can get their deal closed today or worst case in three days. Right. And, uh, at enterprise, you're looking a fast enterprise sales sales cycle is going to be four months. That's fast. And we at X1 have a lot of enterprise customers that have taken in some cases, 18 months to get a deal done. And so that's the first thing I'd say is one is not better than the other. I would tell a salesperson, you, you got to identify which one you want because yep. um, transactional is great because it gets cash in fast. Enterprise is great because frankly, those are usually big, bigger deals. And, um, and a lot of people want those. So, so how do we, so what, I guess, help me understand what's your question. Like the first question, what, how do you move from one to the other? What's the difference? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like we were saying, transactional is usually pretty quick. Mm -hmm. few days, few weeks, perhaps up to a month in terms of the sales cycle. Um, so but transactional, moving... you, you've got to get to the point fast and transactional. Exactly. Transactional, you have got to make sure that you understand how you help. A, there's like two, two things that I think are most important, Sam. I'll be interested to get your take on this because I, I have a lot of respect for your perspective. Number one um, is how do you create value? It's really important for you to understand that. You need to be able to get to those things really, really fast. And the other one is, how do you, how do you learn what someone prioritizes? And um, because that's the other thing. People, I, I'm thinking when I was at this bank, this large bank, Sam, I'm going to tell you a funny story. It was a transactional sale, okay? Uh, a lot of people don't realize that banks are very sophisticated B2B sales teams. You're selling uh, financial products to help CFOs and controllers run businesses, right? Sure. We, this goes back in the day when um, check scanning technology was just coming live, okay? And okay. so you could have a remote capture tool. You could scan checks, get the money in the account instantly. You didn't have to worry about mailing checks back and forth and having clear their Federal Reserve and come back, okay? That period of time that business used to have to wait to get their money was called float, okay? So this company was one of the ones that invented this technology. It was super cool. We're taking out. I'm on a sales call with one of our officers. You ready for this? He's sitting okay. down. You're, you're the business owner. I'm the sales guy. This, this guy is trained on what to talk about, and he has what he thinks is a value point. It's eliminating float, getting your money faster, okay? He doesn't, he doesn't have any questions. He comes in and swings the float hammer. He's hammering float like crazy. And I'm watching this customer, and this customer's dying to get a word in, Sam. He's dying to get a word in. And uh, finally, when my sales rep stops speaking, he spits it out. He's like, float doesn't affect my business. Float doesn't affect my business at all. And there's really only one good answer to that. I won't, we won't talk about that right now. What my rep said was, he leaned forward, put his hand up, was, well, then clearly you don't know how to calculate the financial impact of float if you don't think it affects your business. Yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> we didn't get that deal. We, we got escorted out. Surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, we did not get that deal. And that's a oh, great man. story because that's a transactional sale. And if we assume what someone prioritizes, you're probably not going to get the business. So those are the two things. And transactional, you've got to get really good at helping people prioritize to you what matters. And number two, you've got to be able to be very fluent inside that usage situation. So I come back to usage situations because that makes it easy for me to know priorities and how value is created. I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on something, Rob, as well, whilst we're on this transactional sale yeah. topic. So, for example, in our scenario, WebChoice, we're a digital marketing company. So yeah. when I'm speaking to new prospects about, let's say, for example, a, a new website, um, so someone might want a new website, I've, 
be asking about their goals and objectives. For example, they might be wanting a redesign. And I'll say, look, um, often when I speak to customers, they want to redesign for a number of reasons. That might be to drive more leads, to improve their brand positioning, or to showcase a new service that they may have, or to add new elements like e-commerce online trading. Um, is, it one of these that, is it one of these the right reasons, or is it something else? So I'll go through common reasons of why they want to do it. Would you say that's a, a good practice, Rob, that to, yeah. to kind of give them options rather than hone them in on a, on a certain thing? So especially, so there's a lot of different communication styles, Sam. And I, the reason I like what you just said is if you don't know someone very well, you need to assume that they're, the person you're talking to is a driver because that's the business case. That means they know where they want to go and they don't care much what you as a vendor think, right? They don't. And so the best way to speak to those people is kind of in bullet points. Hey, well, my favorite line on something like that, Sam, and for all of your listeners, is what you just said. As I listen to you, it reminds me of, or as I listen to you, it makes me think about those things. People that have asked me to do these same things you've asked me to do, it's usually for X, Y, or Z. Um, are any of those the things that are important? And if they say yes, then you can ask what you said, is it anything else? But you want to have the X, Y, and Z bullet points because it primes the pump. Now I'll go one step farther, Sam. Sure. When someone tells you what it is, don't just take that at face value and say, cool and say, move on. Oh yeah, we do that all the time. Now that you understand what the it is, like you said, maybe it's web traffic, maybe it's conversion rates, maybe it's, there's a lot of reasons you might want to have a new website. Find out what the it is and find out there probably was two or three of them. Then you know that I like to invent words. You saw me invent words on a competition we're in. And this is a word that I've been using for like 10 years. I've I can guess what one is. Dollarize, <laughs> right? That's right. So here's what you do. When someone says, yeah, Sam, it's the web traffic thing. Great. What is it today? So first, what is it? It's web traffic. Number two, what's the, what, what's the value today? It's whatever it is. What do you want it to be? What's the value of the difference? And five, what's the value of the difference over time? And if you slow down and you have that and you use that construct, it's super easy. You don't feel like you're memorizing something. What is it? What's the value today? What's the value? What, what is it? What's the value today? What do you want it to be? What's the value of the difference? What's the value of the difference over time? Call it two years, three years, whatever. Not only does it help you have a, a great, good understanding on why they're willing to talk to you about it, but you can start creating a vision with them of them working long-term with you. And I, that dollarizing is never about ROI. Too many salespeople are saying, well, if you buy my stuff, this is what it'll do for you. No, you still haven't talked about web choice yet. You're talking about why is this problem we're solving? Maybe it's conversion rates. I don't know what it is, but let's make sure we have them talking about the financial reason. Because if you do that well, Sam, two things will happen. Your win rates will go up and they'll go up significantly and your cycle time will come down and it will come down significantly. And my favorite part, it helps you in negotiation because when they come back towards the end and say, Sam, we love everything about you, but your price is too high. You can say, okay, I, th I thought we were talking about a problem that was worth this much and then another one that was worth this much. Is that still true? Yes. Okay. Well, if it's a $5 million problem and, you know, if you think $20,000 is too much to invest to solve, you know, X million dollars, what do you think an appropriate investment is? Love it. Shut up. And almost every time they're like, okay, I'll get you your money. Absolutely love it. And I think one point that you've made there as well, Rob, as well as that process, that's awesome. So that's something that we hopefully everyone will, will understand and can, then can utilize from today. Um, as well as that, I think a lot of um, sales reps, sales professionals and business owners, I know myself in my younger sales days, I was scared to talk money. 
I was scared to ask the difficult questions, man. So we should be asking these early on, like what's your average order value? What are yes. you doing today? Where do you want to get? What's the difference? Um, why be scared to ask if you don't know? Like you said, when it gets to later in the sales cycle, you can't bring this up. So you can yeah. overcome objections so easily by knowing where, where they are at today, when they want to get, what the average order is. It just makes sales easy. And it makes you different because they're used to people pitching their stuff. And if you instead spend your time understanding what boat they're in, and why they're doing this, then you're gonna also get up, because you guys do enough of this stuff, going back to your web choice, you know, the customer you're talking to, it may be the first time they've bought a website. It may, they may have done something themselves with a buddy and you're, you're, you're taking their first professional one. They may have never bought something like this before. So they may not even know what things to think about. And so if you ask those kinds of questions, you're gonna have opportunities to introduce other things. Oh, well, if this is what it is, then you also ought to be thinking about this, this, and this. It makes it so you can be way more insightful and way more helpful. And those are the things that create trust. And it's interesting. I get asked to speak a lot, Sam. And once I was asked to speak to 2,500 people on how to be a trusted advisor. And basically, I mocked the term trusted advisor. The whole speech was me mocking it because nobody <laughs> can agree what trust means. If you want to have some fun, tell, your, tell a group of people to write down all the synonyms of trust. And then have, have them read them to each other and see how many words does everybody have that are the exact same. Most of the time, zero match. Most of the time, there's zero. There are three words that, that usually I see help people think of trust. Honest, reliable, helpful. Have conversations that make people think that you, know, you can be helpful, you're reliable, and then creates opportunities where you can demonstrate that you're honest. Love it. Love it. So we've got down an absolute rabbit hole there, Rob, but I enjoyed it. That was, a, that was okay. a great conversation. Now, moving back into transactional versus enterprise, we've covered transactional pretty nicely there. Yeah. Um, in terms of taking that shift into enterprise, what I also want to touch on is how do you stay motivated? So how do you stay motivated for deals that are going on for months and months that might take six months, 12 months, 18 months to close? How do you as a business owner or sales rep actually keep your eyes on the price? This is where process becomes most important. Um, transactional, you can get away with a few key things that you do because it's transactional and it's about f uh, flow. Uh, enterprise, you got to start the same way. You still need to have that dollarizing conversation. You still need to know how to help have, have people tell you how to prioritize. But then you're going to look at this is going to take longer. And one of the reasons it's going to take longer is so many people are going to be involved. You're going to have significantly more buyers involved and so this is why you've got to have process step in. So here's, here's my definition for the listeners on, on how you use process at any kind of sales, but especially enterprise sales. To me, process is about experiences. So what are the key experiences you need to create for a customer in order for them to be able to buy in a well-informed and, you know, and as, as intelligently as possible? And so we say for this stage, what's the goal of the stage? More important, what's the physical verifier? What's the thing that a customer does that says the goal is achieved? The easy way to, to look at that, uh, Sam, is to call it a homework assignment. So if this is a stage, what's the homework that has to get turned into us by the, by the rep, by the buyer, I mean? And so then your rep can say, my activities are gonna be things to set it up so I can give the homework assignment. They will gladly accept the homework assignment and then they will want to give it. Early stage, it's things like just accepting a meeting. As you get into it, it's going to be introducing you to buyers, right? Getting you data so you can create um, dollarized plans, uh, helping you understand what their internal metrics or their wheels look like. 
And so if you have good homework assignments all the way through, it makes it easy to keep your eye on the prize because instead of saying work harder, when do you think they're going to buy? Now you can work with reps and say, okay, we got to do these things to get to this homework assignment. Then we go to the next stage. It's going to be a different homework assignment. And if you have okay. a six stage deal, you may have six homework assignments. And if there's two per stage, you may have 12. It makes it way easier to stay really in the moment on what you're trying to do. If Got that it. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So breaking it down into manageable chunks, it sounds like, and, and putting it into what you call homework. Yeah. Got it. That's great. Okay. So we've, we've covered some stuff, uh, great stuff so far. I'm absolutely loving this conversation, Rob. Um, Thank you. Going back to the, your story, we, where do we get to? So are we up to, to you starting Zvoin? You said you, were, you brought in head of sales for a financial company, I believe. Was, yeah. there, was there anything else that you could share with us in terms of learning yeah, before we move to present day? So, so that story is important because when I had all of those reps, I had about 170 sales leaders. And I was the guy who bought Salesforce. Okay? And I was told very clearly, if this doesn't work, Jepson, a head's going to roll. And I promise you it won't be mine. And I got it loud and clear, it was going to be mine. And so I took that pretty seriously because it was a pretty big expense. And um, what I found really fast, Sam, um, was Salesforce or any CRM for that matter was really good at coming in and getting our tech in, but nobody was really good at helping me know what do I do differently as a leader now? And I kind of felt like I had to figure it out. And so I found out fast without wasting anybody's time. It wasn't about me saying, let's go fix the reps. It was let's empower the leaders. And I found out super fast that I needed to have the leaders be good at the one-on-one -on -one because that's what drove the behaviors of all those reps. And so I started inventing coaching stuff. I started like tracking and, and I had eight people working for me that all we did was look at numbers and see if we could figure out what the great indicators were. And over our, uh, about a three more year period of time, I invented a pretty interesting way of coaching uh, that was data driven and a number of things. And what happened was this 150 year old company immediately started setting records immediately. We won Salesforce's award as the number one instance in the world for using Salesforce to win new business. I won a bunch of awards from the American Business Awards. Our turnover turn was cut in half. Um, we got up to 70% of our reps hitting goal, which is amazing. Um, and Salesforce came to me and said, you need to take that system and turn it into a piece of tech. Got it. And then I started Xvoyant. And Xvoyant is a play on words. Clairvoyant is a magical person that can predict the future, right? <laughs> we say that nobody needs to predict the future more than a sales leader, but we don't think there's any magic required. If you understand execution, you can create very strong predictability and predict the future through execution. And so that's what we do. I took that system that was really battle tested. Uh, we turned it into a piece of tech. And now I run this company where we work with sales teams of all sizes, some transactional and small, some enterprise and big, and we help them take their sales process and build coaching process around it at scale. And it has been like my life's work. It's been something I'm passionate about. I love the sales community, Sam, as you know. And uh, for me, there's nothing more fun than talking to a sales leader about how we can help them get higher percent to goal, you know, all kinds of other of metrics. And that's my story, man, is everything set me up to, to start this. Uh, I've, I've done every sales job. I've been a leader in a small companies. I've been leaders in the big company. I consult with them. Um, I, I literally have thousands of managers that I get to work with all the time and helping them do one thing. And that's give their reps one-on-ones that the reps will thank them for. 
Great story, man. And I absolutely love that. And I love the fact that you took from your previous company that you were implementing these techniques in terms of sales leadership. You built the software as advised and then um, started your own code. So that's great. Now, we'd love to learn some of the strategies that you've utilized to scale Exvoyant to where it is today. Okay. So how long has the company been running, Rob? And how did you scale it up? Was it difficult Coming to start? Coming on four years. Oh, yeah, okay. it's hard. Hey, listen, starting your own company sounds really cool, and it is. It's, it's exciting, but it's you know three times harder. It'll cost three times more money, and it'll take three times longer than you think, and that's best case. And um, yeah, it's hard. It's scary. I mean, I, I didn't want to go raise a bunch of venture capital at the shoot because uh, for a lot of reasons. I, I just, I went and I started, and I, I went and I hit my old company, that financial institution first, and uh, they were my first customer. They knew the system worked and uh, they had Salesforce. And so we dropped it into their Salesforce system. And I had an enterprise customer before it was even really battle tested. That helps. And uh, yeah, I mean, they were patient with me. I gave them a really good deal, but it gave me a, a good customer. And, and it was awesome that we did that. My, my tech team was mad at me. They wanted me to take a few smaller companies first that would give us chances to, to be, get the kinks out. But we went big. I guess that's one of the things that I would say is if you're going to be a founder, Sam, if you want to start your own company, if you're not thinking big, you probably shouldn't do it because nothing iconic was ever built by just thinking about risk management. Uh, you got to swing hard and, 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 you know, swing for the fence. And so, yeah, we started big. And once I had one big one, then I went and got another one. I got, I, I got someone with 3000 sales reps that was able went and bought it. Yeah. Right. They were wow. my second customer right on the shoot. And, um, and so, that gave me some cash flow, and I started to hire some people around it to build my team. And then, you know, I and then we started to kind of grow. And so early on, it was just my pure salesmanship. I went and sold. I'd been the enterprise guy forever. I leveraged the relationship to get off the ground. Yeah. Uh, then I went to someone else that had a similar organizational structure. It wasn't another financial institution, but their size and their organizational structure was similar. That's, that's one of my very favorite ways to scale. It's not, just, it's not just vertical market, but it's org structure. And the reason org structure is a fun way to scale is you can start having people collaborate with each other that are not competitive. Like if I just gone to banks, they may not want to collaborate with each other. But as I found people in different org structures, with that same org structure and different verticals, I started to create a community of, of customers, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, um, and that was good because um, what I found, for better or for worse, Sam, was the problem that my company is really good at solving. People feel it more acutely when they have lots of reps. If they have lots of reps that are geographically dispersed, they felt the pain more acutely than if it was just a five or six person sales team that they're all in the same room together, right? And so, um, so that was, that was key. And so I started with salesmanship and, um, and then I started to build this community. And what I found was they were willing to help me. And, um, I'm not afraid to ask for referrals. I, I learned that early on. And, and so I did, I asked my customers for referrals and because here's one of the things that I think a lot of salespeople and entrepreneurs don't think about Sam, Yep. <laughs> your customers that have invested money, and in those two, they spent a lot of money. It wasn't like, you know, five grand. It was a lot of money they spent. They want you to win. They've invested in you. They need you to win. They, they don't want to be your only customer. They don't want their money to be what keeps you alive. They want your money to be what buys you your freaking car to play in, right? They want you to win. And so if you can be someone that understands them, you get them, 
you deliver what you say you will, they gladly will introduce you to their counterparts in other places. And I have won so many deals because I have involved my customers in either introducing them to me or having them participate along the way to help answer questions. And your customers want you to win and you can't overuse it. You can't use it every day, but if you use it strategically, they're happy to do that. Love it. Love it. So Lev, from the start, it sounds like you leverage your existing relationships. So the previous companies you worked at brought those on board at an early stage and also utilize referrals to, to gain new business. And then what I, yeah, that was, that was the action, the tactical stuff that we did, you know, and then I hired some salespeople and they started calling people and we did the kind of stuff there, but to get into sure. marketing, cause yours is more of a marketing show. You know, I, I think we did some smart things there. I, I tried to, instead of like just do paid ads and stuff like that, that most, you know, quite often that just falls on deaf ears and it becomes a numbers game. It's, you know, frequency times reach and, and that has its place. But as an entrepreneur, I didn't have unlimited budget that I could just go frequency times reach. I wanted to take like a special forces, one shot, one kill approach, if that makes sense. And, um, Love that. you know, and so I, I found ways to, to put myself in front of large organizations like Dreamforce. Salesforce has me speak all the time. So when I yeah. go speak at Dreamforce, that first year they had me go speak and um, I'd already been speaking because I'd been their customer and I was like, I'd won this award. They'd put me in front of people. But when I started this thing, they let me keep speaking. And, and in that first year uh, when I spoke at Dreamforce, I got five deals from that and it cost me nothing. I got five wow. deals. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, I want to do more of that. And so I speak quite a bit and, and almost every and I, here's what's interesting, Sam. I never pitch X ever when I speak. I don't have any pictures of my tech in my slides. I don't talk about what we do. We talk about solving very specific problems and then give customer examples of how we know customers that we've worked on have solved them. And then there's lying like 70 or 80 people out the door wanting to talk to me about how we could do the same thing for them. I'll never forget it. I had a stack of business cards and I looked at this line of people that wanted to talk to me and I had a guy that was there working with me. He took my cards and he just went in line saying, here's Rob's card if you don't want to wait. And um, that first dream force got us off the ground. And now I speak, I don't know, 40 or 50 times a year at different things. Excuse and, the pun, Rob, but that sounds like the dream, having prospects lining up to talk to you. Yeah, but see, but that's because Salesforce has people lining up because they want to get more out of Salesforce. So I was helping Salesforce because they were introducing best practices on how to make Salesforce work for them. And I wasn't pitching. And it's funny, like people in my company, like they look at my deck, like Rob, you don't pitch the company anywhere. I'm like, I know. And that's why it's going to work. And, um, and so I found that in marketing, if you can showcase, instead of telling people that you're great, you'll demonstrate what you do without saying I'm the biggest, I'm the best, give them a chance to see it. Um, that, that was a big one. So starting to speak. And so I, I got surrounded with some people and had some advisors that had opportunities to create more speaking and, um, and so I, I, I say yes to that whenever I can. And I don't get deals every time, but it's like 90% yeah. of the time when I speak, something happens for our business. And, um, and so that was cool. And right now what's happening, like I'll give you another example of this idea of marketing through your strengths instead of marketing through your product. We, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, when that first started, I reached out to, I don't know, a couple hundred of my customers in 52 countries around the world. And I spent time talking to these 200 sales leaders, 
finding out where they were. And I took all of these things and I found that they were in one of two camps. People were either in crisis survival or crisis uh, management mode, or they were in crisis recovery and crisis growth mode. And what I found was the people that were growing were doing four specific things. And the people that weren't, they weren't doing those things. And I turned it into a seminar and now I'm offering that seminar for free to sales organizations. It's not just a webinar that people can come to. If you want it, I will do it live over Zoom for you with all of your sales leaders and then Q&A afterwards. And it, none of it's about selling X buoyant, but it's, been, it's put me in touch with so many sales orgs. And then that's led to other stuff like that. So my marketing has always been about trying to find ways to show impact without pushing product. Really love that. Really love that. And that's, that's something that I'd say rings through quite a bit to digital as well. So what you've said there, especially in terms of putting together what I'd call effective LinkedIn posts. So yeah. the posts that actually talk about stories or talk about ways that you've helped people or weave in different ways that your products perhaps utilize techniques to grow people's business, but not talking about the product itself. Yeah, I'll give you another marketing tool that we did that's in that same vein and you're doing it right now. You have an awesome podcast and it's about growth and you're, you're not jamming your product on people. You're, you've got a show that's helping them grow. I started the sales leadership podcast. We're excited that you're going to be a guest on it. And, um, and, and we don't talk about X point anywhere. What I do is I bring in best sales leaders in the world and we lay out blueprints on how do you have success as a sales leader and, and, and stuff like that. I found that the more I try to push my product that, you know, I get industry averages on that, but I'm way more effective when I find ways to market through my strengths rather than market through my product. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, we've covered good ground, Rob. Um, what we do like to ask on the show is if there's anyone tuning in that's thinking of taking the leap and starting their own business or for anyone's recently started their own business, are there any golden tips or golden nuggets of advice, Rob, that you could share? First of all, if someone says they got a golden nugget, run like <laughs> hell because everybody's deal is different. Um, surround, what I will say is surround yourself with people that have walked the path that you've walked before. Uh, one of the best things that I've done is I found people that have walked the road that I'm trying to, now they haven't done it with my product and they haven't solved my problem, but they've created a structure and they've had an exit like I want to have. Uh, like for instance, a good one for me is Doug Landis. I did not know Doug Landis. Doug Landis is an amazing person. Your listeners should follow him. And he has okay. walked the road. Uh, he, 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 he's helped lots of people. And that guy, man, he has been a difference maker for me. And so surrounding yourself with people who have walked the road because they'll help you see around corners that you don't even know there's a corner coming. And they'll tell you that not only is it coming, they'll help you see around it. That, that's one of the first ones. Because as an entrepreneur, you're going to have to deal with stuff that you did not plan for, okay? And so that would be my first thing. Second yeah. thing is sales solves almost every problem. Um, if you need more invest, investor funds, go sell some more stuff because then they'll invest. If you need a better healthcare plan for your employees, go sell something. If you need to pay people more, go sell something. Uh, founders, there's a lot of technical founders and they rely on product. I was a sales founder and I needed to rely on other people to build my product for me. But I will tell you, uh, if you're a founder, don't just, don't be comfortable handing the sales function over to someone and cross your fingers and hope that, that they'll get it done right. The most important thing to get right is can you commercialize your idea? There's a graveyard of companies that had great ideas that never commercialized them. Make sure you're getting that right now. You know? And then the third thing I would say is, 
marketing and demand is something that I overlooked early and I think it was a big mistake. If I was to ask your listeners this, I'll ask you, Sam. This is what we're going to I'm going to turn around and interview now, okay? Flip the table. Would you rather have the very best product in the world at what you do with an only okay demand? Or would you rather have an average product with ass-kicking demand? Average. Of course you would. Easy. So I could sell it easier. Yeah, exactly. Because sales solves all problems. Almost all. It doesn't solve embezzlement. Okay, but it solves almost every other problem. Okay, and so, so, so too many times founders are trying to just get that product so perfect. People are going to buy your product for like 20% of what it does. Let's be honest. Think about Excel. You know, there's so many things Excel does that I can't do, but the Great, 20% that, that, I can, that I'd use it for is why I bought it. I don't need to use pivot tables and all that kind of shit. Other people will do that for me. And so keep in mind, what are the 20% that people are going to buy your product for and make sure that is good. The rest, if you got like time and money lying around with nothing else to do, that's fine. But don't get so caught up in your product that you lose track of what's this going to do as you commercialize it. Love it, Rob. And two quick fire ones to wrap things up. Are there any habits that you've got, Rob, that you follow on a daily basis that you think people should be following to be a success or that have helped you? Sweat every day. Get up and get sweating every day. I'm telling you, the days that I like don't get up and sweat first are days that I get tired in the afternoon. I mean, that's, that's important, man. I mean, I, one of my biggest mistakes I made, Sam, is I got so all in on my company, I let everything else go to hell. I let my personal health go to hell. I let um, family relationships go to hell. And you are not your company. You know, I mean, too many times entrepreneurs define themselves, I am my company. I made that mistake and I paid dearly for it. Um, so that's the first one, sweat every day. The other thing that I would say is have a plan for the day. Don't just show up and work hard. It's easy to do as an entrepreneur. It's easy to say, I got so much to do, but I would time block, get good at time blocking. And uh, I can do this for 45 minutes and then I'm going to take a break and I'm going to do this for an hour. Make sure you have time to do it all because if you plan, you can do it all. And time blocking is something that people might think is just basic. But honestly, Sam, there aren't silver bullets. If you do the basics right, you'll get there. And the last thing I'd say is there's only one way to guarantee, there's only one way I can promise you that you'll lose is if you're an entrepreneur. And that's just if you quit. And so it's going to be hard. It's going to be harder than you think. Just don't ever stop because you can find a way through. And the only thing that guarantees that you're not going to be successful is if you stop. So don't. Find a way to get through. Love it. Brings us back to what you said at the start. Work harder than everyone else in the room, Rob. Um, yeah. like, just like yourself, I think we're very similar in some ways that I'm not the yeah. smartest guy, but I'm willing to work my ass off. And yeah. uh, my, my fiance hates me for it a lot of the time because it means I'm constantly uh, at my desk selling. That's um, true. You got to watch out for that because it, it screwed <laughs> me up. I had a 24-year marriage that, that died because I, worked, I, I made my company more important than anything else. Got to get the balance right. That's it. That's it, man. Okay, Rob, what's one thing that businesses should be doing with digital marketing that's going to benefit them from today? That is a great question. What's one thing? You know, this is going to be a little nebulous because I'm not a, an expert like you are in digital marketing. I'm, I'm enough to be dangerous, but if I try to be <laughs> an expert, you'll, 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 you'll shine a light on me and show me as a fraud. So what, for me, it is how do I showcase my strengths rather than my product? And, um, and there's a lot of ways to do it. Podcasting is a good way to do it. Uh, case studies are a good way to do it. You know, in digital marketing, I would create interactive experiences where people are able to have aha moments on how your strengths can help them do something they care about. 
And the more creative you can be at that, the better. Um, I, I would advise find ways to create, a, create an experience. Um, one of the things we do is we actually have a calculator that very visually shows them what's coaching worth. What's the value of 10% improvement in a company? Like, you'll like this, Sam. If you put in how many reps you have, what your win rate is, and what your average deal size, and then you hit, you know, what, what you want your coaching plan to look like, it'll actually spread your people out. It'll show them how many are hitting goal, how many aren't. People are like, how did you know? Like we, we do this with so many people. We know like what the typical distribution is and they look at that and they're able to see what happens if they sort their people and move them up or down. We've got so much business as people play with that, create experiences. I can sort of say is making an experience, not something that makes them say, I figured out why Sam can help me because Sam didn't have to tell me because create experience. Sorry. If that's that's awesome. I love that, man. All right, Rob. And if you could thank just one person, either dead or alive, having a positive influence on yourself and your career, who would that be and why? So I would be wrong if I didn't thank my parents. You know, my dad taught me what it was like to be around innovation. I I still think he should have gone on his own. Um, But then after that, it's Gary Rhodes. He's a co-founder of my company. I met him when I was in the university. Uh, He put his arm around me. That man has done more for me than anyone else. He's helped me get jobs. He's helped me get customers. He's helped me through the greatest trials in my life. And if there's one thing I'd finish with to to people, don't forget about those people who love you most and care about you most. Because it's easy to have acquaintances, it's easy to have colleagues, but it's very hard to have people who genuinely care no matter what. Don't ever lose track of those people. Thanks, Rob. Well, everyone, you've been tuning in to Sam's Business Growth Show, where we sit down with business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. We find out their story, how digital marketing has helped them along the way, and their exclusive tips and insights to help you skyrocket your business. Rob, tell us how people can connect with yourself. Tell us a little bit more about your company and the best way to get in touch. Xvoyant is really easy, man. We're xvoyant.com and it's X-V-O-Y-A-N-T. Sounds like clairvoyant, but there's no magic. Uh, hit me on LinkedIn. I, I connect with everyone that I can. I put out a lot of content. Uh, none of it's pitchy. It's all about sales leadership. And, uh, and, and that, that's the easiest way for me, man. LinkedIn and come to our website. And, and uh, if you have a sales team and you would like to get more with what you have, call me. And uh, if, I can, if I can give you any advice, I will. And I can promise you I won't sell anything to you unless you say you want to. Awesome, man. You've got a great podcast as well, the Sales Leadership Podcast. So make sure everyone Thank checks you. that one out. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Love being with you. Thanks for all you do for our community. Are you tired of constantly hunting for new customers? You could be missing out on regular inbound opportunities all because your website isn't on the first page of Google. Perhaps you're already spending lots of money on advertising, but your website is failing to convert all of your hard-earned visitors into a consistent flow of new customers. If you'd like to learn more about our unusual approach that brings idle clients straight to you, connect with Sam Dunning on LinkedIn or book a free 20-minute consultation via webchoiceuk.com. That's webchoiceuk.com. Subscribe today for more digital marketing, sales and business growth tips from the experts.